This week, opioid prescribing after opioid overdose and troponin in acute coronary syndrome. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am delighted to be joined today by Rena Patani, who is a staff physician in internal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital. Hey, Rena, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? I am great. Rena, I was told by some people that I sounded a little depressed in the last episode, so I just want to throw it out there that I am jolly and happy, and I hope you are too. I am, and we'll definitely <laughs> okay. convey our upbeat natures. Yeah, in we'll try and keep this. Try and keep this upbeat. I agree. Okay, as we talk about opiates and ACS. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> two very upbeat topics. So, um, as always, we're going to run through two articles today, and then end with our good stuff segment with two short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So, why don't you kick us off and tell me about opioid prescribing after opioid overdose? Great, thanks. So, um, as you mentioned, this was a paper that was published in early January 2016 in Annals of Internal Medicine on the subject of opioid prescribing after a specifically non-fatal overdose and the association of that prescribing with repeat overdose, a retrospective cohort study that was authored by Lara Schell and others. So, before we go into the details of the study, the bottom line is that patients who experience a non-fatal overdose of opiates almost uniformly get re-prescribed opiates one month out from the index event, and many of them at large doses. The dose at which they're re-prescribed does itself correlate with their risk of having a repeat overdose. Okay, so that sounds uh, intriguing. So tell me what we knew about opioid prescribing and overdose before this study. Sure. So there's obviously a growing body of evidence on the harms of opiates and specifically the potential for addiction. And the concerning factor is that often these addictions are themselves iatrogenic in their etiology because opiates are often prescribed with good intentions by providers in the treatment of many forms of pain. This this paper specifically was looking at non-cancer chronic pain. And um, essentially, the goal should really be that opiate therapy is time-limited and followed closely by a physician because there are um, obvious adverse events, which can include respiratory consequences all the way to death. And um, even in the last decade, there has been an observation that there is a rise in adverse events occurring um, with increased rates of visits to the emergency department related to side effects from opiate use, including overdose, as well as increased mortality. Mortality itself has quadrupled in the last decade to about 15,000 deaths per year year in the U.S. Yeah, it's super dramatic. Obviously, uh, an increasingly recognized public health problem. I'm reminded of this great story that's told on Faces of Healthcare, which is also associated with healthy debate. Uh, And it's the story of Brian, who's one of the uh, people they interview who was addicted to opioids. And he talks about the complicitness of physicians in his addiction. So I I totally agree with you. And it's it's an awesome story. We'll link to it on our our website. Yeah, no, that would be great. And I think um, a lot of this is really pointing to the fact that, like, are there patterns that might suggest to both patients and providers that maybe the use of opiates, the balance is tilting more towards harm than benefit? And 
specifically, could an actual overdose event represent something that's a sentinel event of sorts that should maybe trigger a reassessment of the best way to manage a patient's pain? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so tell me what these authors did. Okay, so this was a retrospective cohort study. And um, essentially, the authors derived their data from a a data set provided by a single U.S.-based commercial insurance provider. Um, But it was a nationally-based provider, so that there were patients enrolled from all 50 states, meaning there was good geographic variation and inclusion. And they essentially looked at patients from May 2000 to December 2012, who had a non-fatal opiate opiate overdose while being treated with long-term opiates for non-cancer pain. They described long-term as anything that was at least 12 weeks of therapy, and they determined that an overdose event had occurred by using ICD codes from emergency visits or inpatient stays. Essentially, they were interested in looking at the primary outcome of what the daily morphine-equivalent dose of opiates were that were dispensed 60 days before the index event of the overdose, and up to 730 days after the index event, so up to two years after. And they then batched those morphine-equivalent doses into four subcategories. Large, which was greater than or equal to 100 milligrams of morphine equivalents. Moderate, which was 50 to 100 milligrams. Low, which was less than 50 milligrams, or none, which was zero milligrams, obviously. And um, in addition to this, they had some secondary endpoints that they were interested in, which was the time to a repeat overdose event after having had the index event, which was then stratified by the daily dose category. And then they also were interested in looking at whether there was any change in the primary prescriber of opiates in the 90-day periods before and after the index event. And the primary provider was, prescriber was defined as the person who was associated with most of the dispensing for a patient, which could be, which was information that could be obtained from the claims data that was filtered through this um, U.S. insurance company. Right. Okay. So even though my initial title was that this is about opioid prescribing after opioid over- overdose, I guess to be a little bit more accurate, this is actually looking at overdoses themselves as interesting, or as you said, sentinel events, and then thinking about the prescribing both before and after. Absolutely. So tell me what we learned. So just to give you a snapshot of of the patients, they included 2,848 patients. And what did the average person look like? So the age range was 18 to 64 with a mean age of 44. 40% of them were men. And interestingly, there was a higher representation from the South with more than 50% of the patients enrolled from the South, showing that there might be some geographic variability in prescriptions of opiates, even within the country. And then in terms of these patients, about 46% of them were taking large doses of opiates prior to the index event, 22% were taking a moderate dose, and 33% were taking a low dose. What was interesting is that almost 60% had a concomitant mental health diagnosis, which was established again by ICD codes, and we know that mental health issues can correlate with the risk of overdose. And likewise, there was a substance use disorder in just over 40% of the patients, again, established by ICD, ICD codes, and this also can correlate with the risk of, of overdose. More than 50% of the patients were also taking benzodiazepines at the same time. Wow. So can we just take a second to pause um, and reflect on what seems to be like really obviously happening here, which is that people with substance abuse disorders are on large doses of opioids for chronic pain? Absolutely. I think that that's one of the key... Um, 
fact that's emerged from this paper and should really prompt our our consideration of what types of system processes, both in healthcare delivery and in education, could help to address this public health crisis. So um, just to be specific, again, returning to the issue of the dosing, in the 60 days before the index overdose event, this cohort took a mean of about 152 to 164 milligrams of morphine-equivalent opiates. And what was interesting is that their baseline doses rose rapidly in the week preceding the overdose event to a peak of about 180 milligrams on the day before. Wow. So just prior to the most overdose events, on average, the dose was increasing in the week prior to the to the overdose. Event. That's exactly right. Interesting. And so what happens with the dosing after the overdose event? So after the overdose event, the mean dispensed drug was about 118 milligrams. So there was a decrement on average within the cohort. However, as you can see, it is still in what would be considered a large morphine equivalent dose, greater than 100 milligrams. Okay. And what's the time frame of after? So before you said was just the day before. And what about after that 118? Is that 30 days after? So that was 30 days after the index overdose. And that remained stable over the following two-year follow-up period for, for the patients. For over two years, that remains st stable. Mm -hmm. So people were not tapered continuously off of that 118 milligrams. They still stayed, it's, the doses still stayed that high. That's right. And I think the striking thing was that after these overdose events, 91% of the patients were prescribed opiates at least once in the period of follow-up. So almost all of them, essentially. And 70% um, of them had an active prescription just one month after, with a third of these patients being prescribed high doses. Yeah, I have to say that I, it's not that striking to me that people would have a prescription afterwards, especially if you're thinking about tapering people off. The thing that's staggering to me is that at two years, the dose is still as high as it was immediately after the Absolutely. And the fact, I think, that so many of them continue to be prescribed within the large dose category itself. Absolutely. So you mentioned that um, they were able to look at uh, which providers were giving the opioids. So do, what do we know about whether there was continuity or were they getting opioids from different providers? So absolutely. I think that's an important piece of this study. For about 75% of the cohort, they were able to establish a quote-unquote primary prescriber. And in a majority of cases, about 60% of them, the primary prescriber was the same before and after the index event. So that meaning that roughly 30% or more switched to a new prescriber or stopped going to a prescriber, essentially. And so what's interesting is the fact that many of the patients remained at a large total dose suggests that either the risk-benefit of opiate prescription to patients was deemed in favor of continuing to control pain or the primary prescriber was not notified of this index event. So it's hard for that to be elucidated, obviously, from this observational data. Yeah, I guess it's tough to say uh, why they remained on the high doses. But, and, but I guess one way of assessing whether they were still at a safe dose is to ask how many of them had another overdose event. Exactly, which is, is part of their secondary outcome. So in total, 7% of the patients had a repeat overdose event. So not huge, but also not negligible. 
Exactly. And I think what's maybe the most telling in that is that there was sort of a dose response visible if you stratified by the doses that patients were on post in post overdose. So um, for over the two year follow up period, 17% of the patients who had been receiving high doses had a repeat event, yielding a hazard ratio of about 2.5, which was statistically significant. Wow, that's that's pretty high. So that means that for every between five and six patients on a high dose of opioids, you have one overdose over a two year period. That strikes me as really it is. And it tells us that, that this is probably a subgroup that deserves particular attention. So if someone is on a high dose, it should really get our guard up much more than if they're on a low dose. Although even the patients who are on a low dose certainly merit some attention to determine if they're on the right medications for the right indications. Now, was there any comment in the paper about uh, intentional versus unintentional overdose? There weren't, unfortunately. That wasn't included because it was based solely on the ICD codes, which don't always distinguish between that. So the diagnostic, administrative diagnostic codes, basically. Exactly. And um, it also, we should note, excluded any of the fatal overdose events, which is an important missing piece in this. Did they comment on what the how many there were during that time period, or did they just completely not even comment on fatal overdose? It was not commented on. Those were those simply were not included. And I guess the only other last comment I'll make is that it was also noteworthy that 50% of the patients post-overdose event were also prescribed benzodiazepines, which in combination with opiates can be quite dangerous, particularly from a respiratory perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So, Rena, what are your takeaway major points that jumped out at you from this Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's always concerns around observational studies and um, there's a lot that we can't answer based on this study, but I think it does draw our attention to some concerning findings, particularly that um, I think this tells us that patients who are on high doses of opiates and have an overdose, maybe they're declaring themselves as having had a sentinel event, which based on guidelines tells us that we should reevaluate and potentially think about discontinuing opiates or replacing them with other agents. And it also really shows the complexity of managing pain, mental health issues, and substance use disorders, and that potentially there are some interventions that need to be put in place, both in terms of educating medical trainees and residents on how to better manage pain, especially when there's comorbid illness. Um, and also how to collaborate better with other specialists and make appropriate referrals to psychiatry and addictions as warranted. I think the other question that emerges from this is, is this pointing to a fragmentation of care problem? The fact that so many of the patients remained on large doses of morphine-equivalent opiates um, after they had had this event tells us that there is the potential that the primary prescriber didn't know that the overdose event occurred. So how can we close the loop on that to make sure that providers are continuing to do no harm, essentially. Yeah, so I think you raise a lot of really interesting points. I think the power of this research is to be able to identify a problem. And I think the weakness of this research is it can't answer any of the questions about why did the problems occur, right? So it it raises more questions than it answers um, and is really helpful in that sense, shines a light on a really important problem, and then leaves us to ask, okay, why is this happening? Maybe it's because Perhaps there were mistakes and it was an unintentional overdose or perhaps drug-seeking behavior is associated with intentional overdoses. You know, so all of the questions about why it happened 
either before an overdose or why opioid prescriptions were continued after, whether it's fragmentation of care, as you talked about, or a lack of education. We can't answer those questions, but it helpfully raises those questions and shines a light on it and hopefully leads to a lot more work in the future. I agree. I think this is a really great hypothesis generating paper. Yeah. So thanks so much. um, And let's change gears. Okay, so Amol, tell me a bit about high sensitivity troponins. Yeah, so this is a total changing of gears. Um, uh, I want to talk about another cohort study. Uh, This was a prospective cohort study that was published in The Lancet, which showed that high sensitivity troponin assay can be used with very good negative predictive value in patients who have suspected acute coronary syndrome, which suggests that maybe one single measurement is good enough and serial measurements are not necessary when suspecting that patients have acute coronary syndrome. So Amol, maybe you could tell us a bit about what was, what was the impetus for the authors to ask this question? Yeah, so here's the like, why is this what sounds like incredibly technical and kind of boring question really important? So um, chest pain is a super common problem. And we know that acute coronary syndromes are one of the most important uh, reasons and most common reasons for presentation to the emergency department and reasons for admission to hospital. Most clinical practice guidelines recommend that if a patient is being being suspected of acute coronary syndrome, in order to uh, rule out acute coronary syndrome, patients should have serial troponin measurement at several time periods, whether that's six hours and 12 hours after the event, uh, or three troponins, eight hours apart. You know, there are different recommendations, but basically all of clinical practice at the moment is predicated around serial troponin measurement. As a result, this often leads to prolonged emergency department visits or hospital admissions, even for the purposes of ruling out acute coronary syndrome. Um, And the purpose of this study was to determine whether new high-sensitivity troponin assays, which are in use at some hospitals already and are increasingly being evaluated, can identify patients who are at very low risk of having a complication and who can be safely discharged from hospital after a single measurement. And maybe can you just remind us all about how when the conventional troponin is likely to rise in a setting of ischemic chest pain and and if they have commented in this paper on when the high sensitivity troponin would be likely to rise? So they don't specifically comment in this paper about the timing of the traditional troponin assays. But what we know um, is that standard troponin assays usually begin to rise two to three hours after the onset of an acute heart attack. Um, And by two to three hours after the presentation, about 80% of patients who have a heart attack will have elevations in troponin with the standard troponin uh, assays. So this paper looks at this new sort of high sensitivity assay. And you may not have the answer to this question, but I'm just wondering if we have a sense of what the uptake, even within, for example, North America, has been of the high sensitivity troponin assay in general. That is a good question. Is this widely available or are hospitals in transition, or is this still a a limited? So you're right. I don't have a a perfect answer to that question. What we know is that high sensitivity troponin assays have been available for several years um, and have been taken up 
sporadically across North America. I can speak for Toronto and say that several of the hospitals in downtown Toronto um, are using high sensitivity troponin assays, whereas other hospitals are not. And there have been some growing pains associated with high sensitivity troponin assays in terms of understanding how to interpret such a sensitive test. Uh, And so this paper helps add to that evidence base. Okay, great. So um, why don't you tell us a bit bit about what these authors did? Yeah, so this is a really interesting uh, paper because it's published as a prospective cohort study, but it's actually one arm of a randomized control trial. So these investigators identified consecutive patients with suspected acute coronary syndrome at three Scottish hospitals, which were participating in a cluster randomized control trial that's studying this new high sensitivity troponin assay. The patients that were enrolled in this prospective cohort were those that were in the standard care arm of that cluster randomized trial. So they were receiving normal care. All of these patients that were enrolled in this study were seen by an attending clinician who reviewed the patients at presentation and included those who had suspected acute coronary syndrome using an electronic screening form that was integrated into their clinical care. So basically every patient that was suspected of having ACS uh, was enrolled in this study at these three hospitals. Every patient had an ECG performed and they also had a troponin measured. Now, interestingly, when this patient had a troponin test sent to the lab, the lab did two assays. They did the standard troponin assay and they also did a high sensitivity troponin assay. They reported the standard troponin assay back to the clinician, so that's why it was the standard care, and they kept that high sensitivity assay hidden. Uh, And that's why this is the control group, and in the other patients in this trial, that high sensitivity troponin assay was going to be reported, and we'll see what the outcomes are and how that affects care. All we're looking at right now is those patients who had standard care, but we know that they had a high sensitivity troponin that was measured, uh, and that's the lab test result that these authors are talking about in this study. Does that make sense? It's kind of complicated. It does make sense. So this is specifically with regards to the derivation cohort of this study. Exactly. So that was the first cohort in whom they were uh, deriving the estimates and the cutoffs for uh, the use of this high sensitivity assay. And then they developed two other cohorts. So that first cohort was about 4,800 patients, that derivation cohort. And then in two other cohorts of patients, they validated the use of their cutoffs. So one was 1,100 patients um, at one of the hospitals. And so that was an internal validation cohort. And then they enrolled another 300 patients at a different hospital. So that was an external validation cohort. Does that make sense? So total, we're talking about 6,300 patients prospectively enrolled in this study. So how did the high sensitivity troponin perform? So of the total 6,300 patients that were enrolled in this study, 61% of them had a plasma troponin level that was less than five, which was considered low. The authors found that that cutoff of five is the most useful cutoff. And has a very good negative predictive value for patients having a true heart attack or complications associated with uh, their presentation. And that's a single read, just to be clear. One single test. So 
if your plasma troponin level, the first one that was measured, was less than five, you were extremely unlikely to have a heart attack or to have cardiac complications. To be precise, that number, the negative predictive value was 99.6%. So that means of everyone who had a negative test, only 0.4% had a heart attack or a complication. So this sounds like a great test. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that it was similar in whether the patients were men, women, whether they were older or younger, no matter what their cardiac risk score was, or whether they had ECG changes. So the really interesting thing is even people who were high cardiac risk, so came in and you use a risk stratific stratification score, so they use the GRACE score, but you use a score, you stratify someone as really high risk. If they had a negative troponin more than two hours after they presented, they were extremely unlikely to have an event, just as if they were a low-risk patient. Um, and so to be clear, it was 0.4%. So that's about one in 200, mm -hmm. right? Not nothing, but a pretty good test. And did they indicate how far out they were from the time of symptom onset? Because if we're talking about the troponin rising at roughly two hours post-symptom onset, then certainly if the patient presented earlier than that, then this may represent a false negative. That's right. So that's a really important question. So uh, in fact, that two-hour mark is what they found to be important. 85% of patients had symptoms that began more than two hours before they came to hospital. So okay. only 15% were in that two-hour window. And the test performed best for that 85%. It did not perform as well if you were within that two-hour window. Okay. Okay, so that's, that is a really important point. So there were 2,900 patients in this study who had a negative troponin. 12 of them had adverse events, okay? So that's the, where you get the 0.4% from. Of those 12, five of the patients had really clear evidence of ischemia on their ECG, so they would have been cared for anyway, as if they were having a heart attack. Two of the patients were in cardiac arrest, so they were like obviously having an ischemic problem. So this leaves only five patients out of the 2,905 patients who had no obvious ECG or troponin changes, suggesting that, in fact, the test is even better if used in a clinical context mm -hmm. at ruling out uh, cardiac events. So this sounds too good to be true. Well, perhaps it is. So we're talking, so basically what this paper has demonstrated is that this high sensitivity troponin assay is an extremely sensitive test, which has therefore a very good negative predictive value. That's not totally surprising. That's like basic clinical epidemiology, more sensitive test uh, helps you rule something out, right? So it has a good negative predictive value. The flip side question is, what about false positive results? And what about you know unintended consequences of having a more sensitive test that has more false positive results? And that was a question that was not addressed in this study. Does it look like that question will be analyzed in this subsequent RCT? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of the set of analyses that will be done is when we do introduce these high sensitivity troponin assays into clinical practice, what are the consequences? And I think that's exactly the type of question that the RCT is looking to answer. So it sounds like you're saying it's too premature to jump on the bandwagon and convert all of our regional laboratories 
Actually, what I'm so I think what I'm saying is, if we practice, if you practice in a hospital with a high sensitivity troponin assay, and it's worth asking the you know clinical biochemist at your hospital, um, then one trop- negative troponin result, if it's more than two hours after the patient's presentation, is probably enough to say that uh, the patient does is not at risk of having. Uh, uh, an event, and they probably don't need to have serial measurements. And obviously, that could have immense implications for reducing length of stay in the emergency department and maybe even reducing admissions to hospital. In this cohort, the authors state that they think this could potentially reduce admissions to hospital by as much as 40% in this cohort. Now, I find that number a little bit uh, challenging to believe, and it's hard to know how many other admissions would be increased as a result of having say, a false positive result. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we need to interpret this with caution, but certainly uh, it's a potentially really helpful finding that we don't need serial measurements. That is helpful. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, Rena, let's move on to our good stuff segment. I feel like that troponin got a little bit out of hand there. Got a little technical. No, but you were upbeat throughout and that's I the most upbeat. important thing. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> um, so... Let's move on to our good stuff segment. Tell me what caught your eye from the world of medicine. Sure. So I wanted to share an article that appeared in um, cbc.ca in early January 2016 that talked about Finnish-style baby boxes that are coming soon to Alberta. And um, if you haven't heard of these before, these are... baby boxes, I feel like, could go in several different ways in terms of what actually is a baby box. I'm going to assume it's not a box for babies to be put in. Actually, you're incorrect. So these are boxes that are given to infants and their families, which firstly contain a whole host of essential items for newborns. But the boxes themselves have a padding underneath, which allow it to become the baby's first bed. Oh, wow. So it is a box for babies, as well as a box with stuff for babies in it. It is. And it's something that's been in existence in Finland since the 1930s. It's it's sort of universally accepted in Finland as being a gift from the government to new families, an ultimate sort of socioeconomic equalizer, and also um, with the intention of optimizing outcomes of newborns. And notably, Finland has really impressively low infant mortality rates, lower than the United States. But I think, so now that this is going to be launched in a pilot project that's going to be studied in Alberta. Oh, interesting. And so uh, they're rolling this out just as a pilot test? That's right. And they're going to do some research to see um, whether it changes a whole host of outcomes. It's part of a larger project to support new mothers. So there's going to be a component of social supports that are built into this, including having mentorship relationships in the community. Um, but certainly this will be this will be one important aspect of it. That is a super fascinating program that I didn't know anything about. And now I'm going to go read all about Finnish baby boxes because I just love the idea of the government giving babies and new mothers gifts. Yes, and giving them a strong start. That's right, a strong start. Okay, so um, my good stuff segment is about the new dietary guidelines for Americans, which were released on January 7th. Um, and have received a fair amount of media attention. We're going to link to an article in the American Journal of Managed Care that talks about what you need to know from uh, the new dietary guidelines. So these guidelines include a fairly impressive overhaul of the previous guidelines. So they're receiving praise on the one hand, while at the same time, 
they're not quite as progressive as the guidelines scientific advisory committee had suggested they should be in their previous report in like February of last year. And so they're receiving criticism on the other hand. You can't, you, you know, you can't win with everyone. Um, so where these guidelines are receiving praise is that they've gotten away from nutrient specific approaches recommending, uh, you know, a recommended daily intake kind of approach to focusing on healthy dietary patterns overall. Part of the thing they talk about with healthy dietary patterns is about sort of nutrient mix and in the sense of eating nutrient-rich foods and the amount of caloric intake, uh, limiting overall caloric intake. They've specifically also placed a recommendation that people should have less than 10% of their calories from sugar sources, which is really remarkable. And if you remember, we had a podcast I don't think it was me and you, but we did a podcast last year called The Sweet Truth, which was about a story about sugar industry influence. And if you haven't heard mm -hmm. it, it's worth checking out. And it there's it's the story of why that 10% cutoff, which had been suggested for years and years and years, never really made it into the recommendations, in part because of lobbying from the sugar industry. So now that recommendation is there, that less than 10% of people's calories should be from sugar. They removed the limits on dietary cholesterol, instead saying that people should limit their intake of saturated and trans fats. But this is in response to some of the emerging uh, literature around uh, dietary cholesterol itself, not necessarily, you know, good fats, not necessarily uh, being bad for you. And then in terms of criticism, the main criticism is in, uh, has really come around its treatment of meat. So the guidelines advisory committee and the WHO had sort of released these reports early last year where there was comments about linking processed meats to cancer and the advisory committee had suggested putting a, a cap on the amount of meat people should, should be eating. The final report actually just says that red and processed meats and poultry can be part of a healthy diet uh, as long as people stick to the other recommendations. So it's a bit of a weak recommendation and people say that they've sort of, you know, been cowed by lobbying from, you know, agriculture and stuff. Pun intended? Uh, pun intended cowed. No, pun not intended. That's great. Pun retrospectively much enjoyed though. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing that the guidelines did not comment on was about sustainability when it comes to uh, meat and, and the agriculture industry. So interestingly, the scientific report uh, does comment on sustainability, which is like incredibly progressive, um, and the, the overall guidelines do not. But anyway, it's, it's a refreshing take. And while we're here, we can pause and think about the state of Canadian guidelines around diet. So the Canada Food Guide was sadly last updated in 2007. Although encouragingly, the Canadian government appears to be overhauling the Canada Food Guide. There are no formal timelines for when that's going to happen. Um, and they're currently in Canada working on updating the Canada food label. Um, so soon to come to a processed food package near you will be a brand new label uh, endorsed by the Canadian government. So that's it for me. That, that ended up going a bit long too. I apologize. I try, at least we can have maintained our upbeatedness. No, absolutely. And I think that's obviously very globally re relevant. Nutrition's a topic that applies to all of us. It's true. We it, all eat. We all eat.
you know, Brazil gets a lot of attention for their food guide. Apparently super progressive. Very progressive and includes some social advice around Totally. Nutrition. Eat with people, right? And eat things you make yourself. Ooh. You know, just very simple yeah. um, pearls that probably can contribute a lot to health. So if you wanted to post, there's a Golden Mail article on that. that All right. Might be Sounds a good accompaniment. Okay. Uh, thanks, Rena. That was really fun. Let's do it again. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Okay. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.